0: Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Triple R. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and go You are listening to 3RRR. It is a Sunday, of course, at 11 a.m. We've got you through until 12. It's an hour of science. Then we'll hand over to Cam and the team from Eat It. But uh, right now, I'm pretty excited because I've got a couple of my co-hosts in the studio. Um, Dr. Ray, I haven't
1: seen you in a while. Welcome back, buddy. Dr. Shane, it's great to see you. I even got a haircut yesterday for this. And, <laughs> and then I found out I used a lot less shampoo this morning. But uh, it's, it's lovely to be back in the studio. I, I forgot what it looked like. You you just feel the science ex- Exuding from the walls. Is that right? Yeah.
0: <laughs> Something's exuding from the walls. I'm not sure it's science.
1: Um, and
0: Anu is in the studio. We'd never met until today. That's you're, right. Yeah, you're on this, the show uh, over well over a year now as part of the FameLab group. And then we recruited you because you were vaguely interested in space like me.
2: <laughs> vaguely.
0: Vaguely. And, uh, and now you're finally in the studio, which yeah, is so great. so exciting. Yeah. It's awesome. Very Good exciting. to be here. Yep. Now, and on the line, we have Gracie from Texas, who's one of our other recruits, our correspondent from the United States. It's good morning, Gracie. Hey,
3: good morning, Shane. Thanks for having me.
0: It's good to chat to- I should say good afternoon, good evening, or whatever it is in Texas, <laughs> something or other for you. But uh, you're going to tell us some really great stuff later in the show. But we're going to jump into some news, and uh, I think we'll start with you, Dr. Ray. being the world, Do you remember uh, what to do?
1: I, I do. I do. <laughs> I was practicing last night. Um, this was a, a really interesting story about um, the fact that bald eagles are... Dying in the southwest U.S., and they were trying to figure out why. And it was just an example of our environmental impacts are way more complicated than we would think is one simple problem. And this took what I'd call scientific sleuthing uh, from a, a very large concerted effort of EPA, people at the EPA, University of Georgia, in athens and even some uh researchers in germany where they actually figured out that bald eagles are dying from vascular myel which is basically a neurological disorder where they get blood vessels in the white air white part of their brains and it it causes them to end up end up dying and they said well where did this come from and, and 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 they said, oh well, we, they started looking at the waterways, and they went, oh, you know what? There's this plant, there's this invasive plant called um, Hydracola, which is actually native to Australia and Asia, but shouldn't be in nor- in, in waterways there. But mm-hmm. that's not the problem. And they go, oh wait, but Hydracola gets a cyanobacterium. Dr. Shane, you might call that blue-green algae See, I said algae there, I even said it right I didn't say algae (laughs) Um, And you think, oh, well, there's a a blue-green algae So, gosh, maybe the the snakes And the the frogs and and, and, and the fish Eat that, and then the birds eat that And that must be the problem but no while well, it's not great for the snakes the birds and the frogs or for when the eagles eat the snakes the birds and the frogs that's still okay but what happens is when this blue green algae is exposed to bromide chemicals which would be a waste effluent from industrial processes it turns into a metabolite and the blue green algae then makes a neurotoxin that the fish and the frogs and the turtles eat and it's not great for them but then the Eagles eat the fish, the frogs, and the turtles, and it bioaccumulates in them, and that's how they get the brain disease that ultimately kills them. Holy cow. <laughs> It's just extraordinary the number of things that yeah. had to come together unexpectedly that would be regulated separately that end up as a bioaccumulation problem in an apex predator. I, I can imagine if a researcher hadn't read
0: the little old lady who swallowed a the fly, there was no, no way you no would no work way. it out. Right? And, right. And, and, and,
1: and, and they figured this out through very careful control measurements with nematodes, little worms, and chickens. Sure. Uh, and the chickens that ate the wrong combination of things didn't make it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I just went, that's hmm. extraordinary. And, and then they went, well, now we know that you need to legislate bromide differently. But the other concern is they think it can happen in mammals, too. Right. And yeah. why that's a Nasty. problem is people eat the fish out of those rivers and lakes. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it a big impact. But it just shows how complex these systems are.
0: Not good. Not good. But it is very complicated. Anu, what do you got for us?
2: Dr. Shane, if you remember last time I was on the show, um, we were talking about the Perseverance rover, and then yeah. we got into the topic of ground control and mission control and how excited they must have been to finally see, well, their dreams realized. And it got me thinking, and back to a different study that I read, um, it's actually from 1997, when the rovers used to be solar powered. Yep. You'd have, like, an entire population of about 250 uh, ground control staff who would be based out of mission control, and they would have to work one Martian soul. Oh.
1: Yes, that's right.
2: So, that would mean that every single day, they'd have to, um, uh, I guess, like, move forward their schedule, their workday schedule by 39 minutes so they could stay in sync with the Martian daytime. Right. So that their solar-powered rover would be functional. And it could be used for, like, navigation and power and all that type of stuff. So this study was particularly interesting, of course, because it's got relevance to us. And when humans eventually do go to Mars, what's that circadian phasing going to look like? And how is that going to affect things like alertness and fatigue? Mm, Yeah, slightly.
0: Because it's 38 minutes short of the day, is it? H- it's
2: it's is? 24.65 is the day, uh, the soul on yep. Mars. And okay. I think it's about 24.2. It's like yeah, a little yeah. bit. It's a little disputed. bit out. Just enough <laughs>
0: out to mess with your system. Yes, yeah.
2: absolutely. And they found, so they did the study on um, about, I think about 30 out of the 250 uh, ground control staff. And they did find that um, almost all of them did actually phase to the Martian soul, provided mm-hmm. that they were educated, firstly. And secondly, well, they were aware that it was going to happen. In. and yep. then secondly that they were provided with things like light box for countermeasures so Ooh. introducing things like blue light as opposed to using warm lighting and this actually enabled them to phase into that Martian soul mm. there were wow. a few incidences where I think someone fell asleep while they were driving to work because things like that <laughs> fatigue was still very prevalent as long as um,
0: not while they were driving a rover that's what you know yeah. no. <laughs> they're driving asleep in their car that's one thing but if they're driving a rover that costs billions of dollars to get to Mars that's a complete no, that's terrible joke but yes. yes
2: absolutely so yeah that's that's sort of what what got me wow. thinking. Well, it's actually if you think about it, there's a lot of cross applications into other mm. um, oper- safety safety critical operational environments that we have, like you know here, like not just in everyday lives, but also things like military, mining, um, even like oh, I would say, even of course astronauts when yeah. you know, they go up into space, it's yeah, all yeah. it's all hostile environment, very dangerous, yeah. has to be managed. We want our astronauts to be performing at a hundred percent. Yeah.
0: See, I'd be I'd be the mission control guy who would walk in with his you know little. Walkman with David Bowie playing, of course. <laughs> you know, Ground Control uh, and a backpack full of melatonin tablets of to course, get me through. <laughs>
2: absolutely, melatonin was definitely one of the countermeasures, yep. and um, I think melatonin patches oh, are what wow, you yeah. use. Patches. Yes. Patches. I
1: didn't know you get patches. <laughs> I'm going to get some of these patches. I, I was just thinking standing desk. If yeah, that way you fall asleep, yeah. you fall down. Well, you
0: know who's asleep, don't you? Because they're <laughs> the ones who are lying down. Yeah, interesting stuff. Hey, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but, you know, on the 8th of April, they're launching the Ingenuity helicopter on it's Mars.
2: Very exciting.
0: Did you know, and I'm guessing you're going to say yes, but did you know there is a small piece of cloth from the Wright Brothers' first plane attached to that craft?
2: Wow, I did not know that.
0: Someone someone grabbed it from, I don't know, some museum. Um, but there is a small piece, apparently of the cloth from the Wright Brothers plane on the Ingenuity helicopter, which is going to be launched on Mars. Oh, which,
2: That's quite the tribute. I cried a little
0: bit when I heard <laughs> that. I thought it was a really amazing um, amazing connection between these two first flights, which that's is fantastic. Um, yeah, kind of cool. So Anyway, 8th of April, people. Uh, <laughs> 8th U- of US April. time, so a day later for us. But yeah, uh, still, that'll be cool if they can fly a helicopter It's okay. We'll
2: start to phase our circadian yeah. rhythms now. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Gracie, what's, uh, what's news over in the US?
3: Yeah, so you can now 3D print your own holograms. Um, So there's actually a company in Virginia, it's called Liddy Hollow, that is manufacturing the world's first desktop 3D hologram printer, which is really cool. Um, Basically how it works is it takes an image from a camera or a video and it basically slices it into individual pixels. Um, And if the word pixel is short for picture element, what do you think they've created for hologram elements?
0: I, I do not know.
3: So it's called a hoggle.
0: Yeah, it's, it sounds like so something from, um, from Harry Potter.
3: Yes, it does. Yeah. It either kind of reminds me of like a mini pig, a hoggle, so like a mini hog, or like a bagel for some reason. So I'm a little conflicted about it. Um, yeah. But the printer essentially prints these hoggles by using laser light into kind of a special holographic film that they sell with the printer. Um, and I've also learned through this that we apparently call a lot of things holograms that aren't technically holograms. Mm. Um, so the definition of a true hologram is an image that's split by laser beams um, and involves mirrors as well. Um, but other things that are often called holograms are actually what are known as lenticular displays, which are basically just putting, uh, it involves putting a lens on top of kind of a printed image yep. to make it look like it's a 3D image.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. So I used to teach holography in um, in physics years ago in my, my not, well, less old state and um it was it was amazing how when you actually created proper holograms because they include information both about the intensity of the light but also the phase of the light and that allows us to then and and recording both of those things in a 3d emulsion or a 3d film is actually quite hard and you as you correctly say you use lasers to do that it's a very difficult process but it means that then whenever the when a, a reference beam of light hits that hologram what you get is exactly the sort of light you would have gotten off the real object so you don't just get changes in intensity you get changes in phase and hence you can look around it and the position you're in means you see different things Um, but the idea of actually actually being able to print that is quite phenomenal like that sounds like a a really interesting um application how big can you print them i'm I'm curious can you make a full-size person
3: Not quite yet. It looks like from the website, uh, the printers could print about uh, maybe like four by five inches. So it's still pretty small. Uh, But you can maybe print your own little mini R2-D2, you know, straight from Star Wars.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Um. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool. And tell us, um, just while we're here, we've got a minute. How's uh, the scenario going over in the US? Have you been vaccinated yet? You must be getting close.
3: Yes, I actually, yes, I got my second dose um, last Friday. Wow. Yeah, finally got my second dose. Um, And then also the snow, it's really funny that you asked about that today because it's 84 degrees right now outside um, Fahrenheit. (laughs) So um, it's pretty warm.
0: Yeah, so I think the last time we spoke to you, you were inundated with snow, no power. um, Yes. You know, hell hell hath no fury type thing. And a a couple of weeks later, you're you're in a heat wave.
3: Yeah, so what's really funny about that is that the heat wave started literally the week after the freeze. Mm. So you just never know. The weather here is kind of crazy.
0: But. Yeah, and which vaccine did you get? The Pfizer vaccine.
3: The Pfizer, yes. Yeah, how are you
0: feeling? No ears growing on your back or anything like that? <laughs> <Yeah>.
3: Nope, nothing, <laughs> nothing bad at all. <laughs> uh, yeah, I really didn't rea- have much of a reaction at all, which was which was nice.
0: Excellent. Well, that's that's really good news. We're glad to hear that you're um you know you've got that and you're safe. And I think uh, no one in this room we we're not in which queue are you
1: in, Ray? Two B, two A, the second one to the end.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm in the you're you're not quite old enough but
1: yeah yeah, you know, yeah 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 i'm just under that and i'm like yeah. i'm okay being under that yeah, uh, yeah
0: yeah yeah. and then you you're you're probably in the last group yeah well it's funny i was at a uh, birthday party yesterday and a uh, few of the um few of the people there were shall we say not on the side of vaccination i very as a as a science communicator it is a very interesting discussion that you have with people um Dr. usually King,
2: you know that i've lost a lot of friends over this <laughs>
0: Well, it's interesting because one of the first things I always try and do is work out what the source of their information Mm is. And it's usually Facebook or, or something like that. And, in fact, many of the things that you hear are are things that have already been sort of just thrown out, you know. And uh, a good example of that was the the deaths that occurred in Norway with some elderly citizens who were vaccinated was actually the same number of deaths that normally occurs in that group of elderly citizens on a given day anyway. They just happen to get vaccinated at the same time. So there was no no causal connection there. It was just, you know, these things happen at the same time. It's kind of like saying, oh, you know, three people who got vaccinated today had car accidents. Well, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people have car accidents. It just happens. Of course. but it 's hard for us sometimes to pull that information out from you know what we hear, and, and so whenever i 'm in these situations I, I, I try and listen first to where where they get their information from because that mm-hmm. that gives you an idea of what kind of uh, mountain you have to climb
2: absolutely, especially with all the misinformation in the tabloids it's... yeah
0: yeah look and, and I think more Sorry. and more more and more news organization, organizations are becoming tabloids, uh, which is not helping, but um, yeah, we just have to be mindful of the alternative to vaccinations is pretty nasty. I think, Gracie, you've seen what nasty looks like in in your country a lot more than we have here, which is, um, I'm sure you admit, it's pretty pretty awful. Yeah. Yeah, pretty rough.
3: All
0: right, folks, we're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back with our first uh, guest for today, um, Hannah Savage. She's based up in Brisbane at the moment. That's going to be a bit of fun. Um, So here's some tunes for you and we'll see you in just a moment. Triple R. Now, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 R. We have our first guest on the line now, Dr. Mohamed Sabarian from RMIT University. Good morning, Mohammed. How are you going?
4: Well good morning. Good,
0: thanks. Now, you're working on something very interesting, which is, um, I, I suppose, a problem that is going to hit us very soon in a very major way, and that is the issue of what we do with all these disposable masks that we have been wearing and tossing out, hopefully disposing of properly, most people anyway, um, during the last year. Give us an idea, first of all, how big is this problem
4: uh so that's a very good question this problem is very big and uh based on our estimation uh we found out that more than 6.8 billion of disposable face masks are being generated across the globe every single day Mm. and i recently read a uh, report and uh they said if we don't take action by the year 2040 or 50 the number of face masks in oceans would be more than number of fish this is a major and uh, very uh severe environmental impact and we need to take action and we need to do uh urgent action
0: yeah so in terms of the, the issue with the masks themselves are there their chemicals or components of the environmentally damaging or is it mainly the sort of physical structures that are the problems for like birds and fish and so forth like we see with with many other um, items of rubbish
4: Yes, so uh, the, the face masks are made of non-biodegradable plastics, mm. like uh, polypropylene plastic, and the decomposition uh, the of the uh, face mask in the environment takes more than four uh, 400 or four, 450 years. Uh, I mean, yeah, it takes like at least 400 years to break down in the environment.
0: Mm. So essentially, they're there permanently from our perspective, like they're, they're there for a long time. Um, yeah. So, now, you, you and the engineering team there at RMIT have been working on uh, the possibility of utilising them in concrete. Before we get into exactly how to do that, um, can you talk us through what, what is involved in the concrete in roads? I mean, there's, there's, I've seen them laying these things. They just redid the one outside of my home, actually, and there's multiple layers. Can you talk us through what's involved in making a, a, a solid road that's sustainable and can handle all the, the stresses and so forth that it that feels?
4: Yes, so uh, the the structure of pavement is made of uh, a few uh, different layers. From the top, uh, we have the asphalt layer, and then at the bottom, we have base, subbase, and subgrade, uh, which are the uh, made of you know natural aggregates or natural materials. And recently, uh, engineers and you know governments are willing to use, uh, I mean, are using the the recycled materials like you know recycled concrete aggregate for making the the uh, different layers of pavement. And uh, so aggregates are the main components of uh, of the road material. And we can incorporate other types of materials, like, you know, uh, kind of plastics, chrome rubber, or these sorts of waste materials to increase the flexibility of the pavement structure.
0: Mm. And so, I mean, this is the interesting question, isn't it? Uh, most people, I suppose, would be thinking the second you add something in, you are potentially compromising the strength and resilience of of these road materials. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing it's not a matter of you can just throw any old rubbish into these materials. I mean, there must be some fairly heavy processing before you can use something like a face mask in, in a concrete road.
4: Yes, definitely. We cannot, I mean, we, we shouldn't think as the as road to, you know, kind of a, a platform to just, you know, bury our waste materials mm. inside. We need to find an engineering solution. We need to do some processing, some, you know, treatment for the waste materials to make them viable or feasible to be used as pavement materials. So definitely some uh, engineering, you know, uh, methodologies or techniques needs to be done on the waste materials before they can be used for pavement materials or road material.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I suppose the image I have in my head is all these things, just, you know, whole face masks somehow implanted in the concrete. But I, I'm, I'm guessing that's not the case, is it? You must be chopping them up or?
4: No, no, this is not the case. So we did some treatments and, you know, uh, on the on the face mask and then uh we, we cut the face mask to the to a certain you know sizes and then uh, after these this kind of process and treatment uh, then we, we we put them in concrete or for for road applications and yeah we did the testing.
0: Yeah. Now one of the things that we haven't talked about is the fact that these face masks are also biohazardous materials. Uh, what's involved there? Because even though these things are ending up in concrete you know, there are people processing these materials, people laying the concrete, there, there must be a scenario where you have to treat them in a certain way before they can be um, used in any sort of construction, yeah? Uh,
4: yes, that, that's a good question. Uh, but uh, the, uh, our study was like, you know, the first study to just, you know, uh, to see and answer this question, if we can use the face masks for road and concrete applications or constructions. And uh but, but we believe that the kind of a multidisciplinary uh, research needs to be done first to uh, to somehow work on different type of different uh, areas of this project like you know, working on the disinfection, uh, working on the you know uh, see if there is any biohazard effects mm. on the on the environment or not. but yet yeah, the our study was the first study was to first study to, to, to just study. Uh, the feasibility of using face masks for road construction.
0: Yep, and what what other sort of materials have you looked at prior to that? Because presumably this work's been going on for for a while. I mean, face masks are obviously a current problem, but there's a lot of other wastes and plastics and so forth that we'd probably like okay. to hide away and forget about for a while. What what other things have you tried using in in some of these concrete structures?
4: Yes, that's a very good question. So. Before the face mask, we've done uh, rigorous research on using different kinds of face materials for road construction. We evaluated the effect of uh, waste tires, uh, glass from you know glass bottles or you know these sort mm. of glass, also recycled concrete aggregate or building rubbers. We also evaluated the effect of uh, brown coal fly ash, which is the you know byproduct of coal ash, and uh, also different types of plastics. So we've done a, a extensive research of using waste materials for uh, road construction.
0: Hmm. Okay. Well, look, it sounds like a, an interesting path forward. Um, obviously, we're going to have to solve this problem of face masks in one way or another over the coming months, and hopefully most people are disposing of them properly, but um, properly still means a huge amount of landfill and, and some of them inevitably getting into the environment. So good luck with that work, Mohammed, and uh, thanks for chatting to us today on Einstein and Geiger. Thank you. Folks, uh, that was uh, Dr. Mohammed Sabirian from RMIT University talking about the possibility of storing some face masks in uh, weird and wonderful places. You guys, you just chucking them out in the in the street. Dr. Ray, you, well, no, uh... there's
1: there's there's rubbish bins. Yeah. There's rubbish bins.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's it's been amazing though. Like I don't I don't know about you, but have have you gone through this cycle where I remember when when the pandemic was first hitting. Um, I'd sort of, I was almost changing them every 10 minutes kind of thing and I was yeah. really rigorous about my face masks and now I will admit when I go to certain hardware stores that you know I'm less rigorous about throwing out that mask because I know I'm not interacting with people who are at risk Is that, has that changed for you you?
2: well initially i picked up like those um reusable masks and i had like the insets in them and then i realized well the insets are just as bad as the disposable masks uh, because you're gonna throw them out and then what happens to them after that like what is the life cycle i think maybe like some education around um you know towards the public around okay well how how often should i be changing this i did hear that it was single use so you can only use it one per interaction (laughs) um and then later on it became well maybe i can just use this one once per day um like, which one mm, is it?
0: <laughs> yeah. And I think the reality is if you, um, if you do encounter the virus and you have the face mask on, then the correct disposal and removal of it is as important as wearing Absolutely. it because you're touching it. Absolutely. And, you know, you don't get to go and scratch your face and so forth. And um, I remember those few first times I went to the supermarket when things were getting really rough and i had a very very rigorous approach towards what i would do this you know almost almost getting a stick off the ground and I- getting this thing off my face <laughs> into the booth of the car kind mean of like to make sure that i wasn't in any way touching it and then you know, rigorously washing my hands with you know 100 proof stuff.
2: absolutely maybe these masks need to come with gloves so that you can have like the disposable gloves and, yeah, and then well, we're just really contributing to the degradation of the environment
1: then there's a procedure for degloving properly without contaminating <laughs> yourself. Yeah. like it, it you do just have to wash your hands at some point yeah no i think it's um look we've all gotten a lot better
0: at it but there's still a lot more um a lot more work to do there and and we're we're lucky we had some breathing space uh, in Australia, but I I still marvel at the number of people I you know I see whose mask sits below the nose layer, mm. and I I think um I I'd almost prefer they weren't wearing them at all um, because then I could see them coming. <laughs> it's a bit more forewarning, you know, because you don't you can't tell until they're really close that they're yeah. they're not wearing it properly. But um but certainly as you know as we, uh, we have a bit of flexibility at the moment. We're very lucky compared we're to other nations. We're very fortunate. Yeah. Absolutely. And hopefully the, the vaccination program will get us in, keep us in front. But, um, uh, you know, even we're seeing in Brisbane, you know, today, um, you know, some,
1: yeah. some issues. Uh, it's Hopefully we can um, speed up the uh, vaccination program to yeah. even mm. close to the original proposed dates for it.
0: Well, I think uh, the reality is once we, uh, once we start, you know, and we are doing that now. You know, tuning them out in Parkville at mm-hmm. CSL, uh, making them locally, which is something you know I think Melbourneians should be very proud that we have that that capability. Then the number of doses will just spill out on mass, yeah. and I'm guessing the next piece of news will be. You know, trying to convince more people to get vaccinated. Not, We don't have enough vaccinations, Mm. but that initial surge will happen and then it'll be a a struggle to convince everyone to be vaccinated in order to make sure we're all safe. Anyway, we should take a a break for some music and uh, then we'll get our second guest on the line shortly. Folks, you're listening to Einstein at Gogo. I'm Dr Shane. We'll be back in just a few moments. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Go Go on 3 Triple R. We have our second guest in the studio. Her name is Hannah Savage. She was one of our 20 and 20 guests many, many, maybe a year ago. Wasn't that long ago. Um, Hannah's doing a PhD in the Department of Psychiatry at the Melbourne Neuropsychology Centre at the University of Melbourne. Welcome back, Hannah. How are you going?
5: Thank you. Thanks for having me on this morning. It's been a great show so far.
0: Oh, thank you. It's um, it's good to have you back. I mean, we we got you back because you're working on some super interesting stuff, and I know you're up in uh, Queensland at the moment. Um, is that just for the weather, or uh... Uh,
5: I kind of migrated back uh, with housing arrangements post. COVID, but uh, hoping to visit soon, although I'm a little bit too close to Strathpine Man for my life, oh. so we'll see how that pans
0: out. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you where you were relative to that new hotspot, but um, <laughs> as long as you weren't one of the 25 people at the party, I think you you know, just no, bunkered I'm down. safe on that front. <laughs> you should be fine. Now, you work in this really interesting area of neuroscience, which has a look at how we respond to threats, and I, I suppose we all have this this sort of baseline understanding that when we feel under threat, that we consciously react to that. But, um, but it's a bigger story than that, isn't it? Like our bodies are doing other things. Tell, tell us a little bit about what's happening.
5: Exactly. So in my PhD, I've looked at how our brains respond when we're looking at something that's threatening and something that's safe and how our brain actually adapts when those signals change. Mm-hmm. And one way that we uh, record or measure how successful people are able to work out threat and safety is by getting them to tell us how they feel. And we also record their skin conductance or how sweaty they get in response to threat cues.
0: Right, right. And
5: as you said, it's really interesting that these two things that we measure often aren't correlated. So you might tell us that you're feeling fine but your sweat response might indicate that your body is detecting threats within your environment.
0: Yeah, interesting. Now, I might—I'll um, just get you to hold your microphone a little little closer first, because it's a—it's a little hard to hear. That's great. Um, now, so it, so our bodies—there's um, all sorts of things that happen when we're, I suppose, threat meaning anxious. Is that—is that, is that the—is it anxiety our bodies are feeling? Is it our, like, what's going on biochemically that says I should sweat now, whether I like it or not?
5: Well, that's really interesting. It's something that we're not 100% sure uh, how that works. I guess in animals, we're a little bit more clear about the neural circuitry because we can really get in there and sort of edit how it works. Mm. Uh, But the difference, I guess, between animal research is that the animals are pretty genuinely scared for their life Mm. when they're um, in some of these threat tasks. Whereas humans, we know we've got ethics on our side and we can't really scare people. So we do think in humans, we're measuring anticipatory anxiety, that sort of the stress that comes with knowing that you might hear a big burst of white noise or get an electric shock uh, in the near future.
0: Yeah. So I was going to ask you, how do you go about inducing the idea of threat into your human subjects? And is that is, that, is it loud noises and electric shocks? Is it like um, basically the start of the film Ghostbusters or the episode of The Simpsons? Is that, is that <laughs> like
5: Yeah. Uh, yeah, so in our uh, paradigm, people need to do it inside the MRI machine so mm-hmm. that we can uh, see what's going on uh, in their brains. And so they have a, a special headset, a big set of earphones that we do burst a big burst of like a ch- sound of white noise into their ears. All obviously safe, but um, it's still aversive and it's an uncomfortable sound to hear so
0: loud. I, I'm not sure I want to ask this, but how do you get people to stay still in the MRI when you're doing that to them?
5: Oh, it's tricky. I mean. The, We definitely do the whole, you know, this is very important that you stay nice and still, but you can't fight that startle reflex. And we have some uh, uh, post-scanning things we can do to sort of remove those time points when people have jumped because yeah, you can't fight that response
0: yeah okay I'm glad you didn't say gaffer tape um now in <laughs> in terms of so this is functional MRI so this is I'm guessing so this is the, the the version of a magnetic resonance imaging system that can track things in time in very short time periods and so which part of the brain are you are you looking at because my my sort of I guess, limited knowledge is that my amygdala, the sort of back, the more primitive part of my brain is dealing with this. But is that right or is, it, or is it more my sort of higher functioning part of the brain?
5: Well, I think that's what's interesting about the difference between these two different responses is that some theories would suggest that the amygdala is more involved in the underlying automatic threat response. So that's like our sweating and that's probably most relatable to the animal studies that we see. Whereas our subjective response or how we know that we feel, that kind of conscious Mm. feeling of fear, um, we think might rely on some other brain regions. And that's what my study, the most recent study, has really worked out when we look at the whole brain which brain regions, if we were to stop them from working, hypothetically, would we change the subjective report or would we stop our skin conductance response from happening? Hmm. We call them the neural mediators of these responses.
0: Yeah. And and is that something that we could actually do? Could we turn off these responses? Like is there is there some way of doing that or are there I, I, I wanna I wanna think his name was Gage, that famous famous individual who had a railway spike put through his head that taught us a lot about neuroscience i mean is there are there people who have a, a an issue with that part of the brain that don't feel fear
5: um so uh, we do know some people with amygdala lesions show differences uh in their sort of fear responses and it's interesting uh, depending on whether the hippocampus is involved if they still have a fully functioning hippocampus whether they know that the threat was there but they didn't feel what we would consider to be a feeling of fear mm. um But it is a tricky line. I think um, epilepsy studies where they stimulate certain regions has told us a lot, Uh, and definitely naturally occurring lesion studies are very interesting. Yeah. But um, yeah, our functional imaging tends to look at the whole brain, uh, particularly in my case in healthy, unaffected individuals.
0: Yeah. Was it Phineas Gage? Is that the name I'm looking for?
5: Phineas Gage, yeah.
0: My God, I actually remember something from my childhood. Um, part of my brain's still working. I'm very excited. Uh, and, and in terms of what you've found, I mean, do all these things sort of, sort of all function in, in the same direction? Like when there's a threat, do they all do the same thing or are they getting mixed up? Our brains are so complicated. Sometimes we, you know, sometimes you, you feel that sensation of fear, but you don't cognitively um, experience it. So what, what, are you, what are you seeing with the functional MRI?
5: So the first study of my PhD looked at simply what is happening in our brain when we are experiencing threat, kind of capturing everything. Uh, And we found that there are certain brain regions, uh, like one called the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex and the anterior insular cortex, that are particularly uh, more activated during threat and other brain regions that are deactivated, which just means they show less activation than a normal state Mm -hmm. when we see something threatening. And what's, I think, really fascinating is that we need a balance between both of these regions in generating our subjective experience or how we feel. It's not simply that one brain region generates this response. It seems that all of them working together in the right way is required.
0: Yeah. It's fascinating to me because, you know, one of the things I find interesting is how many people like to go and see scary movies to sort of artificially generate this response. I mean, there's obviously... I mean, I know our brains are so complex, but that says it's not just, like you said, with some sort of sort of lower animals, just I'm afraid for my life. But there's something more complicated going on there in terms of our cognitive interaction with our fear response.
5: Yeah, I mean, maybe there's some reward-related mm. processing going on there. The relief of a stress having occurred and you've survived it, I'm not too sure, but I do... I quite enjoy a
0: scary movie myself. There you go. Maybe you you could have people watching scary movies while they're in the MRI and you wouldn't have to uh, give them these pulses of sound. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. The shining. Um, So what's what's next on the sort of investigations there, Hannah? What's the next thing to look at? Because it sounds like you've, um, you know, sorted out a fair bit.
5: Well, that's maybe an overstatement. We've got our little piece of the puzzle to add. Um, I think I'm really interested in the temporal dynamics of uh, which kind of comes first, Mm -hmm. Uh, depending on... uh, We don't really know how our emotions actually generate within the brain, which I think is fascinating, given that they're so central to our experience as humans. Um, And there are some theories that think our body reacts and that's why we feel a certain way, Mm -hmm. whereas there are others that we sort of sense how our body's feeling and we contextualize that within our environment. And I think getting into the temporal dynamics, maybe which response comes first to inform the other, uh, would really help us uh, to get one step closer uh, to working that out.
0: Yeah, I, I can imagine too, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but there are some, some emotions for which we, we need a very rapid physiological response and others where it's not as important. And I wonder whether in you know, an evolutionary sense, for some of them, it might be one way, and for others, it might be the other way. Is that is a that possibility?
5: Uh, I think so. I mean, with threat, we know that you need to respond if Fast. you're in a life-threatening yeah. situation really quickly. And that's, I guess, where we think that these autonomic response, the sweating, the role of the amygdala might be involved mm. in those quick responses. Um, and definitely, the, def- the more complex emotions like guilt and things like that, I would definitely imagine would take a little bit longer to construct yeah. Uh, within our brain yeah.
0: yeah procrastination you know things <laughs> <laughs> i want yeah. to work on that for a while <laughs> <laughs> yeah well look hannah it's been great chatting to you again good luck with uh this ongoing work hopefully at some stage when you're down in melbourne we can actually get you in the studio this is the second time we've had a chat and on both occasions it's been via zoom but uh it's, yeah it's, fingers crossed fingers crossed um but it's good to hear that uh, things are going well for you how long have you got to go on your phd now uh, submitting in eight, oh, August. Oh, oh, geez, eight <laughs> oh my goodness! This Give myself a heart attack. You're a dollars gone August. Up. <laughs> Yeah, August. Well, well. Good luck with the ongoing work, and we will hopefully chat to you again soon.
5: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thanks, Hannah. Folks, uh, that was soon to be Dr. Hannah Savage from the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Melbourne. We're going to take a break and then Gracie will be back with us uh, in just a few minutes to talk. Uh, uh, well, actually, it's we're going to be talking about something that I think affects all of us. And it's, gonna, it's probably going to mess with you a little bit. So uh, hang in there and we'll be back in just a moment. Triple R. Uh, it's science time, folks. You're listening to Einstein and Go-Go. We've got about 15 minutes left. We've got Gracie back on the line from Texas. Gracie Finko, who is going to tell us disturbing stuff about our memories. We were just talking all about the uh, the brain. Gracie, what's what's going on?
3: Yeah, thanks, Shane. Uh, today, I'm going to talk about a sport most people probably have not heard of before, and it's called the World Memory Championships.
0: I don't remember hearing um, And about basically, that. Uh... yes,
3: and I'm I'm going to talk about what we can learn from these top memory athletes to improve our memory in everyday life.
0: Oh my God. Um, are they really so called cool the athletes? World- Sorry, can I just jumping in there, Grace? Yes. Are they, are they no, cool- go
3: ahead. Yes. Is that okay to yes, call please.
0: athletes? Memory? Yes. A chess, memory a chess athletes. player's athletes? I don't know.
3: Yes. Okay, yes. Memory athletes. That is yep. what they're called.
0: Okay. <laughs> Self named.
3: Yeah, so <laughs> the World <laughs> Memory Championships started around 1991. and They've been held annually every year. Um, and it basically involves completing uh, 10 different memory events that are all timed. And these events are spread out over three different days. And I'm not going to read out what all 10 events are. But basically, they all involve memorizing random numbers, random words, dates, names, faces, images, playing cards. Like, if you can think of it, hmm. this contest basically involves that. Okay. Um, and you can actually become a grandmaster of memory. So kind of like a grandmaster of chess. You can become a grandmaster of Memory. And there are only about 150 of those people in the whole world. Um, And to qualify, you have to complete three specific events at the World Championship. So those events are, you have to memorize 10 decks of cards in an hour. The other one is, you have to memorize 1,000 random digits in an hour. And then the third one is, you have to memorize a deck of cards in under two minutes. So to do that last one, that averages about 2.3 seconds for each card for a full deck of 52 cards so
0: you mean a random um, so i get a random deck of cards i get to flick through yes. them and i've just got to remember the order
3: yes Yeah. so okay. not only do you have to have time to flip through and see each card but you have to be able to memorize it yeah. and the, re- the world's record for doing this by the way uh for a deck of cards is under 30 seconds so that's almost two cards per second wow if you can imagine someone doing that um Yeah so it's pretty insane. Um, So we probably think that these memory champions have some sort of innate ability like some sort of exceptional memory. Um, How many people do you think have won the World Memory Championships with kind of a special memory superpower?
0: I, I don't know it, uh, I'm wondering how, I mean these are obviously aliens and not they're not real people Dr. Ray no, is this is
1: this is this is beyond people just recall <laughs> they have to learn some type of way to organize their memory and their thoughts this, Yeah it sounds to me like they need training mm-hmm. They have to train Yeah Yeah like yeah, an definitely. athlete would Yeah like an athlete Yeah
3: definitely Yes that's a great <laughs> analogy Yeah um, and interestingly no one that has claimed to have any sort of special memory ability has ever won The world memory championship so they're all just average people just like you and me Uh, like ray was saying they do a lot of training um and then so if they don't have any special kind of memory abilities you may think then surely they have something else going for them like maybe high intelligence but actually most memory experts um have about average to slightly above average intelligence they found so not super exceptional um otherwise the same memory as the average person so just like you and me okay um these these people lose their car keys just like us, they forget what they had for breakfast. Just like everyone else, okay. and the the difference is really in their training.
0: Right. Okay. So, what what kind of training is involved? Because I, you know, I don't, I, you know, hate admitting this to people, but I generally don't admit uh, remember the guests I had like three years three years ago or three weeks ago for that matter. And this is a great source of right. concern for me. I remember the topics and I remember people's faces, but if you ask me to who, what were the names of the people just three weeks ago, I really struggle with memorizing that and i I guess i don't try to but it seems to just go yeah
3: right definitely yeah and it's for these very specific events that's what these memory athletes train for so that's what they're going to remember best and i'm going to go into some of the techniques in a minute um but yeah it's kind of basically some of them have trained for years uh and even decades um And really, studies have found that the only really main difference between memory champions and people like you and me is what parts of the brain they're using when they're memorizing. So um, there's actually a study that took brain scans or specifically fMRIs um, of world memory champions. And they actually were shown to use um, areas of your brain for like spatial memory and navigation. Mm -hmm. And when I go into the technique, the main technique that they use, that'll be more obvious why that is. Um, so they actually use a technique called the method of loci, or some people call it a memory palace. Um, and basically what it involves is, um, you kind of think of a familiar place. So maybe like your house where you live or like a street and you pick maybe five to 10 locations along your mental path through each of them. So maybe, for example, I start out, I wake up in my bedroom and then maybe I walk down my hallway. I walk down my stairs to my kitchen into my living room maybe or maybe you pick a street that you know really well and you could start kind of by storing grocery lists or people's names there with some basically like creative visualizations Hmm. so an example of this is if I need to go to the store and I want to remember a grocery list say I want to make an apple pie so let's say I need apple apples I need maybe eggs sugar flour so I can picture maybe an apple tree growing in my bedroom And then I walk into my hallway, I picture eggs that are smashed kind of along the hallway floor in a really big mess. Um, And then instead of sugar, maybe I picture a candy shop along my staircase. And the more outrageous, the better, really, Mm. Um, because it's going to stick a little bit more if it's a little more outrageous. Um, And then instead maybe of a literal bag of flour to use for cooking, maybe I could picture flowers like the plants blooming in my kitchen. Um, and really the more outrageous it is, the more likely I am to remember it. Um, and you want to use as much of your brain as possible. So maybe I want to be smelling the apples coming from the apple tree, or I want to be picturing myself eating the candy down the staircase to make it more memorable and actually stand up comedians and people that tend to give live presentations will use this technique to remember where they are in their set.
0: Yeah. I hadn't heard of this technique before, but it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I know When you, if if you've ever had a scenario with a psychologist where you've gone through a guided meditation that involves a visual setting where you slowly but surely add detail to add reality and there'll be smells and and crackling leaves under your feet or whatever else, Um, you'll find that I've found this where, you know, I I can remember some of those made up scenes a decade later in in great detail um, because of that. But I'd never thought of sort of uh, mapping a list or something across onto that. That that seems quite interesting.
3: Right, yeah, and a lot of people tend to, I mean, now we, we have cell phones, right? We tend to outsource these things mm. so that we don't have to remember them. We'll make a list, you know, in our phone. Um, but I noticed kind of in looking into this, a lot of memory athletes give a lot of talks around the country Um, about kind of this over reliance that we tend to have on our phones for information and we tend to use our memory less and less Um, and how these skills are actually really important in things like education and school uh, all the way from when you're younger to an adult learning skills in your job Um, and then even particularly as we age and how people tend to lose their memory as they age. Um, So for instance, going back to education, maybe using things like analogies in lectures or making up your own visualizations whenever you're learning something Mm. Um, and even really everyday things, like how often have we all forgotten people's names right after we meet them? Kind of like what you were saying earlier about the people yep. that you've had on the talk show, and even if it's three weeks later versus a day later. Um, I mean, how often have we all done done that? Um, yeah. And so, if we kind of visualize something that will remind us of their names, we're more likely to remember it. So maybe if I meet someone named Olivia, for instance, maybe I picture olives. Olivia reminds me of olives. Um, and obviously, you would pick your own kind of visualization of whatever that reminds you of. It would stick better that way. Um,
0: yeah, I have, that, and then I have also, that particular problem where, you know, when someone tells me their name when we first met, I'm guaranteed to forget it immediately. And it's it's really problematic because you spend the next 15 minutes feeling embarrassed. You don't want to ask because you, you don't want to make them feel unimportant. But so for some right. reason, my brain just doesn't – it doesn't keep it in. It's um, Right, and yeah. it's –
3: kind of an awkward situation so let me tell you there's another technique too that would help with that so there's one called spaced repetition and you could do this if you're learning lectures in school or with someone's name it's spaced repetition is basically just the idea that um you're going to recall what you're trying to remember at specific points in time so you're going to do it repeatedly and you're going to have time in between when you do it Mm -hmm. um so basically, for people's names, if you're meeting somebody new, you can repeat their name back to them immediately. So, if you were meeting me for the first time, my name is Gracie. So you would say, "Oh, hi, Gracie, nice to meet you." So you would kind of work my name into the greeting, um, and then you can kind of think of Gracie. What does that remind me of? Um, graceful, which I'm not, but I mean, you could. <laughs> I'm going to assign that for you. Yep. Um, so you could you could associate that with my name, um, and then maybe we talk for a while, maybe five, ten minutes, or however long. So some time has passed between us talking and between you saying my name so then now whenever you're saying goodbye you'd say bye Gracie it was nice to meet you so you'd use my name at the end and then if by the end of that conversation maybe you don't remember that person's name at that point that would be the best time to ask before you maybe run into them again or have to recall it again
0: yeah I I think there's a there's obviously a a massive disparity between various people too some people do this quite naturally and maybe they are using these techniques naturally but it's it's fascinating to me that Throughout our educational experience, we're never taught any of these techniques for how to remember things. And I think memorization and recitation is less in our educational programs now than it used to be, but it's still problematic. Right. And it's still something that, you know, people still have tests and standardized testing is still widespread, even if it's not, not a good way to go. Um, but we don't teach memory techniques to people in, in school.
3: Right. There's one uh, world memory champion that's actually won eight times, mm. and his name is Dominique O'Brien. Um, and I was watching him give a talk, and he said that exact same thing, that he w- he wants to have kind of a big push towards actually teaching students how to learn. He said that should be the very first lesson in school, is how to actually learn these things. Rather than just kind of cramming for a test, you're not actually learning You don't have that spaced repetition where you're being asked to recall that information Mm. at later points in time. It's just this test and then that information's done.
0: Yeah. It's really really interesting to me. My, My son is learning piano at the moment and his teacher has an amazing hybrid between trying to read music, remembering things that he can play by ear, et cetera. So there are all those components. And you can see that he really does well with some of those and not as well with others. And I can imagine, you know, I, I might be the reverse. And so sort of having an understanding of how we remember and recall and learn, it, as you say, it seems to be a, a precursor to education that we just don't tackle, which is a problem. So, yeah. Very interesting stuff, Gracie. Thanks so much for, uh, for chatting to us about that. I think um, it's it's made me think, is there, are there ways that I can enhance my, my memory that are relatively easy? Because most of us know that if we're not putting lists down their phones and that these days, we we just... We can't do it, um, but it should be easy. Right, easier. I
3: think yes. Right, I think it's all about intention too. If you kind of have the intention of making that grocery list in your head, versus just you know putting it on your phone in default mode, yeah. Then I think that helps.
0: Yeah, I know when I train people to give um, public lectures and talks and so forth, I tell them they have to be deliberate about thinking about what they want their audience to remember. It's not okay to just assume it will happen. You actually have to help your audience and know exactly what pieces they're going to take away and that's not all of it that's a couple of pieces not all of it but it's a it's a deliberate act um, that you have to go through so yeah very important well gracie it's been great chatting to you uh hope things continue to improve though over there in the u.s and that uh, there's no more major weather events there in in texas for you hopefully things settled down for a while we will chat to you again um, fairly soon i suspect in a few weeks time or a month um and chat about something completely different as we do Thanks yes. so much.
3: Sounds good. Good Thank
0: to Thank you chat. for having me. Thanks, Gracie. Well, uh, Anu, we're finally in the studio together. It's been great having you here.
2: It has been amazing. Thank you for having me, Dr. Shane. So,
0: so uh, we will see you in a month, I guess. In a month, um, in and a month. then
2: we'll discuss Ingenuity and all the other exciting oh, fun yes. stuff that's happening in space over yes. the next month.
0: Cross your fingers, folks, at the heli- Little Helicopter <laughs> Worth a lot of money. (laughs) It's the most expensive (laughs) drone ever created. Uh, Manages to take off. Dr. Ray, good to see you again in the studio. Good to see you, Dr. Shane. We'll see you again soon, folks. uh, We're going to hand over now to the team uh, from Eat It. I know that. they are over there waiting uh, patiently for us to uh, get off the air. It'll be a great hour coming up with Edith with Matt Stedman and Cam talking about food on radio as no one else can. From us though, uh, remember science is everywhere. I'm Dr. Shane. Have a great week and we'll chat to you again next week. Triple R. Hi. This is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Go. A weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einsteinagogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.